Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight, or this this afternoon, our guest is Dr. Scott Kellogg from New York University. Um, Dr. Kellogg specializes in transformational chair work and gradualism, which we'll talk about a little more before we start the show. I'm going to do a little ad here for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from reduced drinking to safer drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. And for more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest tonight is Dr. Kellogg. He is here. Scott, how are you doing tonight? I'm fine. How are you, Ken? I'm doing very well. I can't, I can't get used to working in the afternoon. I'm so used to doing the show in the evening. I keep saying tonight. But, uh, it, it, <laughs> well, it's getting dark here in New York City. so <laughs> It's almost sunset. So tell us a little bit about transformational chair work. Is this related to psychodrama? It is, actually. Um well, actually, originally it was developed by Jacob Moreno, who developed psychodrama, and uh, but it was made famous by Frederick or Fritz Perls, the creator of Gestalt therapy, who actually studied with him in New York City at one point, and then really took the technique and I think went to you know just took it to another dimension in terms of its usefulness and the depth of his understanding of it, and then. Uh, you know, uh, many people very inspired by Fritz Perls began to use it, and I've kind of tried to reap what all these people have done and bring it back to the world and use it myself. So that's kind of my connection to it now. I'm kind of the advocate for it. So if any of our listeners out there are not familiar, how does this work? How do you do this? Well, in some ways it's a very it's a very simple technique, but simple doesn't mean that it doesn't like doesn't doesn't mean it lacks depth. Basically, um, there are two sort of core dialogues you could have. So, say one of your listeners is thinking, you know, about his life and people from the past, you know, or the present he has difficulty with, perhaps the past, you know, a parent or a loved one in some way that, you know, they're not here anymore, but there's some issue. They could imagine them sitting in the chair in front of them, put the chairs, they could imagine them being in front of them for that matter. And they could speak to that person and they could, uh, you know, talk about their their love for that person or their anger with that person or their sorrow about that person or even some of the fear they had. And this way of talking to somebody is very different than talking about something, which is what often psychotherapy is involved, telling the story about something. But this reenactment or enacting of a relationship is very powerful and can shift things. And then your your listener could switch seats and speak from the perspective of the missing person, you know, be it a parent or a lover or whatever it was. And speak back, and this kind of dialogue often reveals new things or touches emotions that maybe haven't been touched in a while, or resolves issues. And the other one for you know for people with addictions, um, of course, is you know should I should I keep drinking the way I'm drinking, or should I make a change? And these could be two dialogues too: the part that says you know I want to keep doing this the way I'm doing it, and the part that says I'm not sure it's not working for me, I'm suffering, and going back and forth between the two chairs or two parts of your room. You know, I don't want to make the change that drinking is important versus I think it's hurting me. I think it's causing me suffering. I think it's catching up with me. So I don't know if that explains, but it gives you a little feel for what I'm, I've been wrestling with. Do you always do this with uh, one person that's assuming both the roles, or do you ever have two people talking with each other? 
It's an interesting question. In in psychodrama, um, which is a group therapy approach, Moreno and you know tr- uh, contemporary psychodramatists will bring different people to play the different roles. So this person will play your father. This person will play your mother. But Pearls felt, you know, for many reasons, that it's better if the, if the person, individual, played all the roles themselves, and they felt there was something to be gained by that. And since I typically work with individuals, I tend to favor that approach. Um, and, and and Pearls would work in a group, but he'd work one on one in a group. And I think there's something to be gained by the, the same person playing all the parts. I mean, you can do it both ways, of course. There's no argument against that. But there's something to be special to playing somebody else and seeing their perspective and giving voice to who they are. And there's some other more complicated things I won't get into now, but there's some energies you can gain from doing that kind of work yourself. What got you interested in using this approach? Well, I'm a schema therapist, um, and I began formally training in schema therapy in about 2000, and this is actually one of our techniques because um, we're integrative psychotherapy with a lot of kind of gestalt and experiential techniques. And um, my second, sort of my second time out with a patient, I had this major breakthrough uh, where a patient basically resolved a, a huge issue in one session. And uh, he came back and said, I feel good, you know, thanks a lot. <laughs> I joked that this is very good for the patients and very bad for the therapist's wallet. Um, mm-hmm. In any case, uh, so I got very fascinated. This I've never seen anything work this fast. And then I started to study it. Then I actually went to a training myself, a workshop, and I had a healing in, in a session about something I was very angry about. And I walked out of there, I wasn't that angry anymore. And I was like, this is really amazing. And I've just been on this journey to study this and to use it and now to bring it back to the world, you know, for people working with addictions, people working with mental health issues and the dual diagnosis. And I think it's, I don't think of it as a technique, I think of it as an art form. And I think of it having just an enormous, you know, you can use it with basically every psychological problem there is, you know. So I think it's uh, beyond a technique. It's really just a whole way of being with patients and a way of being with therapy. Are there any examples or cases from your practice that you could anonymously, that that you would like to share that stand out for you? Um what would be of particular interest to you I can, in terms of an issue? Maybe that would guide me a little bit on that one. Um, well, have, have you dealt with depression, I assume? How, how about one of those? Well, depression, um, I guess most typically there are kind of two kinds of depression. There's a depression about loss, but most typically depression is about um, critical attacking voices, often known as an inner critic. You talk to patients about an inner critic, they immediately know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where where people um, feel this sort of, so you're, you're no good, you're lousy, you're a failure, you're terrible, you're bad, you know, to more extreme versions of, you know, you should die, you should kill yourself, et cetera, et cetera. And in my work with that is first to, you know, is to get them to kind of give voice to that. Can we tap into that? You know, I can partly do it through questionnaires. I can partly just ask them to, tap into it, you know, and then can they give voice to that? And um, so for me and my work, you know, some patients feel very weak in the face of these attacking voices. In many ways, all of us do, because these voices are so deep and they've been there so long. And, I, you know, of course, many people with addictions have these have this as a problem. So one, getting the voice into the room, and then two, often I will talk to the voice, you know, and first, rather than have the patient do it. And... Um, there are basically two kinds of attacking voices, um, and this is, is the work of Jeff Young. It's very helpful here. 
In some cases, the the voice, although it's extremely critical, is actually a voice that's trying to take care of the person. Is very worried that you're going to do something wrong, and it's like screaming and yelling at you that you're you're going to mess it up because something catastrophic will happen. The other voices actually are the internalizations of of abusers, an abusive parent or a grandparent or someone who really are out to destroy the person. And you see this especially more in the borderline personality disorder patients. Um, and so partly is to diagnose is this is this a you know, a voice that's out to kind of misguidedly try to help the person, but it's like way overboard. Is this a voice that's actually pathogenic and really trying to destroy the person? So that's a kind of a diagnostic question. And then beyond that, I would, one, talk to the voice. I would try to, you know, one, explore it, two, begin to challenge it. And three, I'd like the patient to get, you know, we have an inner critic, can we have an inner affirmer? You know, sometimes I think this is kind of like a, you know, uh, uncle or grandfather in some ways that, you know, I love you, I'm on your side, you're, I know you're struggling, you know, which is a little bit different than like the healthy adults or the inner leader, which is the person doing this, more like a coach on the side saying, I think you're good. And that's often my voice for patients that they begin to internalize. I would say in general, when, we, when I have patients who have an interpersonal conflict, like a loss or something, you know, or angered another person, those issues can get resolved fairly quickly with chair work. You know, maybe one session sometimes, maybe two sessions. It's amazing how fast those issues, even if they've gone on for years, can get resolved. This kind of inner attack work takes more, much is much longer. It's just a harder thing to do. Um, but part of it is also, I think, beginning to teach me to recognize, oh, there's that part, labeling that part, labeling that attacking voice, you know, and speaking to themselves in gentle ways. And um, So this is you know, a lot of the kind of stuff I do uh, with different people. Um, and in the process, I guess, you know, the healing voice gets stronger and the, the critical voice gets weaker. Another thing we see a lot uh, with people that come into our group is anxiety. Mm-hmm. I think depression and anxiety are the two biggest things people talk about. Uh, mm-hmm. How about anxiety? Anxiety... Um, well, to some degree, anxiety is a problem that you have to um, do something in the world about in many ways, right? Most, most people are afraid to do something in some ways. So with anxiety, there's always a level of exposing yourself to what it is you're frightened of. But I think many therapists, or I shouldn't say many, some therapists make the mistake of we, they move a little bit too fast into action and they need to do motivation. So the first thing is who wants to get over this anxiety and who does not want to get over it? Who's afraid of, this, of dealing with this anxiety? That's one place to use chair work. Another thing is some people's fears are, you know, are distorted. Cognitive therapy teaches us that sometimes the, the fears are distorted. They're they're a miss. The probabilistic aspects are off. There, so you know, what is the dysfunctional schema? What would be a more adaptive schema? Mm-hmm. And in some cases, they're not actually that off. They just the person has to get courage. And so we go from the part that's afraid to the part that says, you know, I'm going to do this. And we have you know, all the parts get a chance to talk. Because that's part of the Gestalt tradition that everybody gets a chance to speak. We don't just have some people speak and block out other voices. And doing that, then people often have to go into the world and they do that, and there's no substitute for doing that. I have to I have to ask the girl out on the date, or I have to go ask the boss for a raise, or I have to go to the party, or whatever it is they're, they're frightened of. You know, they have to do it. Maybe small steps, maybe some you know, relaxation too, but you have to do it. Otherwise, you never get over your anxieties. Does that fit your, your experience there? Um, yeah, that is my experience. Um, we have generally recommended people to uh, use cognitive behavioral uh, things. Um, 
I, I strongly recommend uh, David Byrne's book, Feeling Good, to uh, people that come to our group because there's a lot of things they can do with that book for self-help, and it helps a lot of people. I think you know a lot of if you take a lot of those ideas from his book or Beck's work, and then you try you play, you integrate with the chair work, you find it much more powerful. And that a lot of cognitive therapists are here using chair work because it gets so much more emotional and so much more powerful. So it's one thing to have a, a dysfunctional belief and have an alternative. It's another thing to shout the dysfunctional belief and shout the alternative. That's a very different um, experience. And the cognitive therapists are very interested now in uh, neurobiological arousal because they believe you know, that emotions need to be hot, or the cognitions need to be hot cognitions. That's how change takes place. Simply reading the book or writing exercises without that level of emotion is not going to lead to the change. So I know Beck has written about using chair work, and Marvin Goldfried has written about using chair work. I don't know if it's David Bird's book, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was. Um, but it's a way, if you're doing that already, to up up the game a little bit. Mm-hmm. It sounds really good. Um, we tell our people generally, uh, we give them <clears throat> kind of a hierarchy to go through. We say, first try this try the self-help book because it's the least expensive and it's the easiest to engage with. And if mm-hmm. that works and solves the problem, then mm-hmm. good. If you need something additional, then we say, well, try a therapist. And we say all kinds. there's all kinds of different good therapies out there. So we don't really recommend one over the other. I mean, this sounds like a really good one that we'd like to talk about more to the people that come to our groups. And then... You know, if the therapy doesn't work, then we say, finally, you know, maybe you need to try a medication. But we right. look at that as the as the last step because there's so many side effects and things that can come with the med- medications. Actually, if, if also if your people go to my website, you know, transformationalchairwork.com, I have a bunch of um, papers. They can just download the papers. And some are a little more technical and some are fairly user-friendly, you know, for the lay public. And they might be able to just use those as as a guide to walk themselves through some some changes. Some a free resource, as it were. This sounds really good. Uh, tell me a little bit more about borderline personality disorder. We get quite a few people that come to our group who are, you know, have a diagnosis of moderate or mild to moderate borderline dis- personality disorders. Well, I've studied with Jeff Young, and and he's made. Borderline personality is sort of his focus of his work and his therapies of schema therapy, and this is now a um, empirically validated treatment for borderline personality disorder. The studies were done in Europe, and there are ongoing studies in Europe going on right now. So this has been very exciting for us. Um, I'm very impressed with his model of borderline, uh, how he understands uh, the the sort of constellation. and if you go to schematherapy.com, you can see his, his PowerPoints on borderline personality disorder. But just to give you a very quick, too quick view of how we would understand it, we basically see the, as actually as Freud did, interestingly enough, you know, the inner world of the person as having different parts. And basically um, there's a, a part of the person that's very harshly critical, going back to what we talked about before. And there's a part in the person that is suffering, we, we call it one, the... Uh, um, punitive parent, we call the other one the the vulnerable or the wounded child who's holding all this pain and anguish. And there's kind of this thing of a torturer and a, and a tormented part. Um, many many borderline patients actually spend time in what we call a detached protector state where they kind of shut down the whole system in various ways, either shut down or get involved in self-soothing behaviors like eating or cutting themselves or taking drugs. And then occasionally they just get, they just get very fed up with this whole thing and they get angry. 
and that unfortunately is the classic aspect of the borderline personality um, patient with their rage and their anger, which is justified in some respects for their the torment they live with, is very dysfunctional because most people can't stand to be around it, especially if you don't understand where it's coming from. And um, what they're missing, however, is a healthy adult part, a healthy inner leader that can both, you know, to get the angry part under control, that can fight off this punitive part and can kind of get the person away from kind of self-soothing behaviors. And that's through the therapy relationship that begins to get internalized. But this is an active therapy where we're talking about these parts. And not always, but often these punitive these punitive voices are actually, uh, you know, abusive figures from real life. That, that They didn't always have that, but sometimes they've had those kind of histories that have been internalized. So there's kind of a whole inner theater that takes place. And, and our, th- our therapy works with a very profoundly relational, connected sense of things. And also a sense of seeing some of these patients as really being emotionally and like very young, really like their children who are suffering and having great compassion. Because unfortunately, many people are very angry at these at these uh, people. I know it's too much, too fast, but just to give you a little feel of kind of how we understand this uh, this difficult problem. Okay, tell me a little bit about your work with harm reduction and with gradualism. So I got into gradualism in about 2000. Kind of all my things happened about 10 years ago, it seems. Um, and at that point, as you probably remember, I, I had really gone through the 90s in the kind of the battle between uh, traditional addiction treatment and the, the psychological treatments. So it was one battle I kind of lived through in this, like we're warring camps. And another version of that was the, the battle between the traditionalists and the harm reductionists, which was pretty hot about in, in the late 90s and early aughts. And I said, you know, there's something valuable here in harm reduction, there's something valuable here in the traditional approaches, there's something valuable here in the scientific approaches. And yet, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm humanistically involved with the, the harm reduction people and the scientific people, but there's, there's still some problems here. And I felt that harm reduction was like a fantastic place to start, but it didn't, it, at that point especially, did not really engage with an end point. Like, you know, it wasn't enough to me just to have, you know, to reduce harm. That was the place mm-hmm. to start, mm-hmm. you know. And then saying, "Oh, you got to you got to be clean and sober before when you start treatment." That obviously wasn't going to work, and that that didn't have a sophisticated understanding of addiction that we're, we understand now. Of you know, the people have many problems, and these are com- there's a complex inter- interweaving of those problems with their drug use and alcohol use. So my idea was that we would create a model where we would sort of gradually and eventually move people toward a state of abstinence or to a state of what I could now call moderation or non-addictive use. And that, um, you know, I think you said at the beginning, you know, any any small change is good or something, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. your slogan like that. To me, that's sort of halfway there. Any small change is good, but we're trying to get someplace eventually. And, you know, because as a clinician, certainly, you know, and Andrew Dietarski and I sometimes wrestle with this one a little bit because, you know, People come to see me. My goal is not to make you half as depressed as you are. My goal is to make mm-hmm. you not depressed anymore. So if you're addicted to a substance, the goal is that you no longer be addicted to the substance. Whether that that goal is absence, or whether that goal is non-addictive use, and I, you know, addiction, I use DSM four TR criteria. You need to be under that level of problematic use, or you're still there's a problem still there. So I don't have a thing you have to be abstinent, but I do think if you're addicted, then in some ways we haven't gotten you to where we want you to be. And, you know, also I think there's a public health tradition in 
uh, harm reduction that was where it began. And then we moved to kind of a harm reduction psychotherapy tradition where they were inspired by the public health people. And I see gradually as kind of the third phase of this where we kind of go, now psychotherapy goes back to public health and says, okay, now you need to learn from us. And now we need to use consciously use mechanisms of change. You need to see what you're doing within a much broader continuum of transformation. You know, and some of your ideas are really, really great, and some of your ideas actually are kind of problematic. And, you know, and so that's sort of what I'm wrestling with. But it was like, I used to say, harm reduction is a great place to start, but a bad place to finish. <laughs> well, I do see uh, some of the groups, uh, our group and, uh, for example, the Genie Littles group that they do in uh, San Francisco at the Harm Reduction Therapy Center. Some people just need a place to engage at all. You know, mm-hmm. it's just, just, and it's a good place for them to get started. And, you know, because we're not clinicians. We're just giving, giving you a place to talk. Right. No, I mean, the power of relationship is so powerful. And, you know, so much of the work you're doing and other people are doing to get relationship and get connection, that is the place, that is an amazing place to start. But, you know, and I think, you know, also I get frustrated with the harm reduction. There's so much the harm reduction people have to offer. And then they say, well, now we want to hand them over to the mainstream treatment people to treat them. I thought, well, that's a failure, you know, because, first of all, that transition often doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And then you're sending them to a different culture of treatment. You know, why don't you treat them? You know, and then that's where we get into the gradualism, kind of some of the arguments take place on that one a little bit, you know, because I don't think we should be switching. I think we should create, you know, harm reduction continuums within our own centers. Mainstream people should should have harm reduction. Harm reduction people should have, you know, you know, recovery-oriented treatment taking place in their settings. That's my vision, at least. Does that make sense to you? Or Yeah, I think what we need is a multiplicity of approaches, that, mm-hmm. you know, many different approaches that people can engage in in many different ways. I mean, the traditional approaches with AA and standard treatment, they are good for some people. There's right. other people that just, you know... They're they're horrible failures with. I'm one of the people that they were a horrible failure with. Uh, some right. of my good colleagues, like Alan Clear at the uh, Harm Reduction Coalition, you know, he's uh, very open about his 12-step membership. You know, and so mm-hmm. there should there should be many different many different gradations where different places where people can engage where they feel comfortable, and that's how I feel about it. But I guess my 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 one sort of debate with the harm reduction more purist or traditionalist is that, you know, I think you need more more uh, ambitious goals. You know, mm-hmm. it's not enough, just any any small change is not enough. You know, reduction, harm, that alone is not enough. I had an interesting, uh, she said I can say this, that's so why I tell the story with uh, Dr. Sharon Stancliffe, you may know her, mm-hmm. an interesting discussion, I may have told you this, um, but, she, you know, I was talking about identity as a way that people ultimately recover at a meeting, and she said to me, "You know, why are you worried about identity when people are dying?" And I said to her, "To her, you want to keep them alive, but you don't want them to get better." And in that moment, that exchange is the exchange of these two worldviews. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you, she starts saying, "You have these grandiose, grandiose ideas about change, but people, we need to keep these people alive today." And I'm saying, "Why so? Why so lacking in ambition? Just keep them alive. They want to be healthy and strong and vibrant and well and whole." You know, you don't want that for them, also. So, I guess you can feel that that dance in, the, in that story there. I do, I do feel it. But my experience um, is so much. You know, if people make one small change when they haven't made any change for a long time, 
suddenly it gives them some confidence, and they right. start wanting to make bigger changes. And uh, I think that's why the support groups are very helpful for a lot of people to get them initially engaged, because you know we are very willing to uh, support people in going further than just being in our group. You know, to go see a therapist, work right. on your underlying issues. You know, keep moving ahead. But we don't right. push any. We don't push anybody. But here's just the. But if you decide for yourself, and when people start making small changes, they start wanting to make bigger changes, and they feel more empowered and more right. able to change things they thought they couldn't change before. Well, I think it's you know it's one thing. It's like I mean, if you see if you see yourself, this is a continuum of transformation, and and hams or other groups, you know, we are a part of that continuum. So we do what we do here, but we one we see ourselves within that in a in a greater movement. That's one thing, and the second thing is when you look at these when you look at these people, you know, you think, well, here's where you are today, and this is where you are today, but I see within you something greater than that. I don't have to tell you about that, but I just see it. You know, I I know it's there, and and having that kind of thing within you, I mean, Goethe is a famous quote from Goethe about, you know, if I treat you as you are, I make you worse, but I see you. If I treat you as as what you are capable of becoming, I make you better, and you know that idea I think is very important. And I, I'm I'm afraid that the, some of the harm reduction ideology doesn't allow that. It's like just give them a needle, you know, and we step away. It's not for us to have agendas for people, and that kind of you know we're only here to be of service. I feel like that is not, in my opinion, the, the, the therapeutic attitude that one should have. It's more like, you know, it's going to take time and one step at a time and one day at a time, whatever you're doing. But we are part of a bigger picture for you to heal, because you are you know you are valuable to us and you are precious to us. And if that's all you could do today, that's all you can do today. It's interesting. When I was volunteering in Needle Exchange in Minneapolis, what I saw was very often, you know, just the fact that we would give people needles and we'd thank them for bringing in the used needles and thank them for using the clean needles. And pretty soon after a few visits, they would start saying, you know, can I get some literature about treatment or about making mm-hmm. changes? And, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that they were respected and you know, they weren't. Uh, they often weren't respected, you know, outside of the exchange. But they were respected inside, and you know, we appreciated them. And it really, you know, brought them out of themselves, and it started making them want to ask more and to move farther. So, I saw that it was really helpful for a lot of people that came in, dropped in there. Right. I, you know, and I'm also interested in reinforcements and in identities. So some needle exchanges will have like. So then we're going to have a peer counseling program. You know, or we're going to have some volunteers come work with us and help us out, and they go through a little bit of training, and we give them a little bit of money when they come to that training. So here we begin to take a more active role in the process of transformation, right? You know, you're becoming, mm-hmm. becoming a needle exchange worker. You're not just, you know, and, and John Zabella has written about this and the transformations he's seen in Massachusetts. You know, but we're seeing something interesting happening now because I'm getting a greater complexity of self. I'm not just a you know quote junkie quote or, or addict, but I'm also an HIV educator as well. And this complexity of self begins the, the for very people who are very on the street. This begins their transformation process. So saying, okay, you know, I'm a, I'm a needle change, but I'm involved in this, and I can think about things this way. I can think about this as part of my work. Relationship first, you know, always first relationship. And but for some people, I can go beyond that, and I can take some active steps. And I think some people have been afraid to do that. You know, or, or mm-hmm, will not mm-hmm. consciously own that that's what they're doing, and I feel like again they weaken themselves by mm-hmm. not doing that. 
you know, that's so why I think everybody should say you're a gradualist organization. I've I've had uphill battles with that one of my Harvardian colleagues because they they're afraid to sort of say I'm in the human transformation business, but we are. I mean, you are with hams, and it's all about changing people and healing people and empowering people. Mm-hmm. Do you see the mainstream and uh, the harm reduction groups and well, mainstream addiction and the mental health people? Do you think there's a, more cooperation today than there was, you know, in years past? Do you see things moving together? Well, I see the public health um, the public health wing of harm reduction seems to be totally focused on public health issues. HIV, now hepatitis C, now other things. Very focused on paraphernalia. And I do not see them moving beyond that, to be honest maybe getting more sophisticated at it, but not moving beyond it. I see the rise of the harm reduction psychotherapy movement, which in some ways you know, is a kind of a dual diagnosis movement. I see that growing. And I see some degree, I'm not sure, I'm in New York, so I might be biased, You know, more interest in more mainstream people looking at the harm reduction psychotherapy. I've had a few debates with the people at um, Drug Policy Alliance because they are advocating for the Ford Pillar model. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, it's popular no, in so. Europe and in Canada. Mm-hmm. But four pillars are harm reduction, treatment, law enforcement, and prevention, and creating drug policy. Trying to bring it to New York State, but the problem I say to them is you're 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 going to make a silo of harm reduction and treatment. When we're trying to pull them together, and you actually are mm-hmm. keeping them apart, and they don't mm-hmm. they haven't been responsive to my <laughs> <laughs> complaints, I guess or. You know, so I, I, I'm I'm worried that harm reduction actually is still too focused on public health and is not embracing transformation. Um, so, I, so I give you a, a half a yes and half a no, I guess, because harm reduction psychotherapy and Andrew Tatarsky's work is certainly growing. Mm-hmm. But I I think there's a problem, and I think they're going to reach the limits of what they can do with public health if they don't get mechanisms of change and, and more complex ways of understanding how people work and what are we going to do with these people. But that's their, they came out of public health and grants truth. They didn't come out of psychotherapy. So I think I don't know if that, if that matches what you've seen, but that's certainly what I've seen. I think you have some valid points. Um, what I do see is that the mainstream addiction treatment people are more willing to listen to uh, harm reductionists today than they used to be. So I think it's really on us to uh, try to communicate with them and tell them what we can bring to them to help them and that we can work together more than we have in the past. You know? mm-hmm. I've certainly seen in the past, you know, there was, uh, you know, the AA way is the only way and there's nothing else. And there was, a, you know, very closed minded. When I went through treatment 10 years ago in Minnesota, in Minnesota of course, well. the 12 step state, but it was very closed minded. Now I see a lot of people that I talk to and it's like, yeah, let's hear some of these ideas. Right. Um, yeah, and I also, I also think harm reductions have been have done a terrible job of explaining what they do, and that was another reason why I create, wrote the Gradualism paper, and I actually have a website for that, gradualismandaddiction.org, if you listeners want to go to that. But um, they don't explain what they do very well. They don't explain why they do it very well, and that is not, uh, unfortunately, hasn't served the movement particularly well. Um, so... I think we have a, we have a lot of work to do on the harm reduction side, you know, both in our internally and then in terms of our interaction with uh, more mainstream treatment. I think. Okay, I agree with you there. There's a lot of work to do. I think that's a good point. 
We can bring this show to the close. And thank you very much for being our guest this afternoon, Dr. Scott Kellogg from NYU. Thank you for having me on. And everyone, come back for our next show on Thursday when we will have people from Vocal, a harm reduction organization in Brooklyn, right in my neighborhood, down the street from me. And then we will have Dr. Edward Kantian from Harvard University to tell us about the self-medication hypothesis. Thank you, everyone, and good night.